You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Back for another episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers, and this might be a long one, guys, as this one is, um, I think I've heard of this story before, but not the in-depth stuff, because this one, yeah, you want to hear details? There's a movie about it, isn't they? In the uh, late, early 60s, I mean? They got seen it on uh, the Stars uh, Western package that they got for Stars. Why would it be Western? It's in 1950. Yeah, but everything back then is like an old, cla- oh, it was classic, sorry. Right. Western classic. I don't know about the Westerns, but um, yeah, and we, we've all heard about it because I think this is where. TCM. Pretty sure this is the one where, I'll tell you right now, because all these people that were, were doing the great Brinks robbery. So all these people wear uh, Halloween masks and stuff that go and rob them. And I think every heist movie has duplicated the wearing the crazy Halloween masks is doing this. So I'm pretty sure that's where they got this stuff from. So, uh, yeah, the great Brinks robbery here on outlaws and gunslingers, which happened shortly before seven 30 on the evening of January 17, 1950, when a group of armed masked men emerged from 165 Prince street in Boston, Massachusetts, dragon bags containing $1.2 million in cash. They're dragon. Dragging it. That shit's heavy. And 1.5 million in checks, money orders, and other securities. I mean, what are you going to do with, Checks and money orders. I don't understand. Oh, you'll cash the right place. Will cash them if the money orders are already uh, they're already made out to a, a certain company. You can't just cash. Yeah, but them. the money orders go to banks. You can cash in a money order. I don't think you can. Yeah, all you got to do is forge the person's signature on the other end of it. And it's already done. That's why they're at the bank, right? Not necessarily. Oh no, they're in. The... Right. I don't think they have to be. They're at a bank. Yeah, they're at a bank. Money orders are cashed. Oh, the Brinks. So they're talking about the Brinks truck. Is that or right? There's no. no way. Once it's at a bank, it's already been cashed, and no, you can't do anything with it with a check or a money order. Oh, we'll see. Maybe we'll say a little something about that. But these men just committed the crime of the century, the perfect crime, and the fabulous Brinks robbery, as it has become to be known. So, the crime of the century, the perfect crime, and then the fabulous Brinks robbery. Mm-hmm. I think I like the uh, perfect crime better than perfect the crime, as uh, this is so long because lots and lots and lots of stuff happened to lead up. To finally, uh, these guys... Is it really the crime of the century, though? I don't know what's the crime of the century. At this point, it had been. Right. Only 1950. You know, it's the biggest bank heist probably in history. I think the original the original name was the Fabulous Brinks Robbery, and as time went on, it came to the other two. Right. Well, it was 720. It sounds like a, a 1950 headline. The Fabulous Brinks Robbery. Right. Or the- Crime of the century sounds like a uh, 1950s yeah, headline. Does for too, sure. uh, crime of the century with the UFO for some reason. At <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, 27.27 p.m. as a robber sped from the scene, a Brinks employee telephoned the Boston PD. Minutes later, police arrived at the Brinks building and special agents of the FBI quickly joined in on the investigation. Quickly. Quickly. And for those of you guys watching on Patreon right now, yeah, let's forgot since we're on the podcast, I forgot that we uh, started on Patreon, but on the podcast, Starting January 1st, 20, well, starting right now, actually, but officially launching January 1st, 2022, 2022. Um, all these Outlaws and Gunslingers shows will be unedited and in video on Patreon slash patreon.com slash bang dang, where as if you're watching right now, you'll see a, a uh, picture of one of the masks that somebody was wearing at the right. scene. So, uh, And that's what you get, especially on Outlaws and Gunslingers, all the cool little pictures that... Uh, what we're talking about at the time and just put a little bit more visual in your mind when you're uh, watching yeah. the episode. So over on CCN, you'll get the edited yeah. podcast version. We're going to continue right here where you're listening to it on CCN creative control network. It'll be edited. And just like you've always listened to it, but Patreon's going to be in video unedited. So at least 30 plus minutes of us messing up or talking Whatever. about straying off the path and Who going knows. to talk about something else. You never know what we're going to do, but uh, a show on CCN could only be, 48 minutes, the same exact show on here could be. We're really recording for about two hours, right? Right. So you never know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that gets left out of there. So patreon.com forward slash bang dang. Make sure it's only two dollars a month for the outlaws and gunslingers. 
Mouth or um uh, um Monday Night Watch Along and Lee and Corey all on video, all unedited, two dollars a month. You can't beat that, right? And Jeez. soon enough, you never know. Uh, something else to be added. Uh, right. You never know. So, anyhow, at the outset, very few facts were available to the investigators from interviews with five employees who the criminals had confronted. It was learned that between five and seven robbers had entered the building at this time. All of them wore navy type pea coats, gloves, and chauffeur's caps. Chauffeur. Chauffeurs. Chauffeurs caps. Chauffeurs. <laughs> Chauffeurs caps. Um, each robber's face was completely concealed behind a Halloween type mask. Mm-hmm. To muffle their footsteps, one of the gang wore creep soled shoes. Crepe? Crepe. Crepe. Like a crepe. C R E P E. Crepe. Crepe. It's crepes. Whatever. Like Italian or what is it? Yeah, French crepes. All right. And uh, the other gang members, they wore uh, rubbers on the bottom <laughs> of their shoes. These guys uh, put crepes in his shoes. Right. <laughs> What's that about? Crazy shit. What about that? Well, as usual for robbers, they did little talking. They moved with studied precision, which suggested that the crime had been carefully planned and rehearsed in the preceding months. So they're like Ocean's Eleven. All right. Recreating the uh, building in a warehouse and shit and practicing it nonstop to get everything I mean, right. It's really the only thing you can do to hopefully make it go as planned. It's like preparing for a football game. Right. It's not going to go mm-hmm. as planned, but mm, we got the drift, right? right? Or the rift. The rift. Drift. drift. Catch a drift. Somehow the criminals had opened at least three and possibly four locked doors to gain entrance to the second floor of the Brinks. Somehow, huh? Somebody was a excellent lock pick. They all wore t-shirts that said, we hate locked doors. <laughs> no more locked doors. Gracias. Yeah, no more locked doors. Oh, yeah. I hate locked doors. Sir. No more locked doors. <laughs> Where the five and... Well, they opened... The, <laughs> they opened... Uh, doors to gain entrance to the second floor of the uh, Brinks building where five employees were engaged in their nightly chore of checking and storing the money collected from Brinks customers that day. Okay. So these money orders are sent to Brinks to be sent out later. I'm, I'm betting. Oh, so unfilled. Right. They're not so, even, they haven't been cashed yet. Uh, so not even filled out or anything. I'm sure they've been filled out. They have to be. They're getting sent. They're still right. in destination. They're not cashed yet. So that's all good money. All five employees had been forced at gunpoint to lie face down on the floor. They came in and said, lay face down on the floor. Face down, ass up. <laughs> I have you at gunpoint. Their hands were tied behind their backs, and adhesive tape was placed around their mouths. Of course, nobody wants to hear anybody. Usually, they're just going to get those couple of criers. And if you're, wa- <sighs> and if you're watching this right now, you don't want it. For the podcast, you're going to see the exact adhesive tape pop up on the screen that they used in the robbery. Here shortly, uh, during this operation, one of the employees had lost his glasses. Oh no! They later could not be found on the Brinks premises, oh. as the loot was being placed in bags and stacked between the second and third doors leading to the Print Street entrance. A buzzer sounded. Uh oh! Ooh, can you imagine that? It was probably a super loud buzzer too. The robbers removed the adhesive tape from the mouth of one of the employees and learned that the buzzer signified that someone wanted to enter the vault area. Oh. I mean. Oh. Uh, the person ringing the buzzer was a garage attendant. Oh, okay. So, so he's like, ringing it to come up, and he's, he's like, not knowing no, that there's a robbery taking place. Right. He's like, no, it's just somebody that needs to, you know. Right. It's so just a worker. Now they're going to have to go get that guy. Well, right. two of the gang members moved towards the door to capture him, but seeing the garage attendant walk away, apparently unaware that the robbery was being committed, Just they did go. not pursue him. Right. To, to draw them, I guess. In addition to the general descriptions received from the Brinks employees, the investigators obtained several pieces of physical evidence, which is popping up here now. They were uh, the rope and adhesive tape used to bind and gag the employees and a chauffeur's cap, which one of the robbers had left at the crime scene. How do you wait? Oh, no, didn't they, they left just, the cap? Did, I was going to say, didn't they just say earlier that uh, the robbery had looked like it had been like, precision and all that stuff, and they're right. careless enough to leave uh, all, all this the stuff. The most important stuff behind. And this adhesive tape is metal. Yeah. Clearly could get fingerprints. I'm assuming, assuming they wore gloves if they got masks and stuff on, no. but you never know. Who knows? Doubt they now. wore gloves. I was like, that's the chauffeur's hat. I would say. With all of his hair stuck to the little fingers. Right, exactly. Uh, the FBI further learned that four revolvers had been taken by the gang. Nice. So, these, so there's armed guys in the bank there. I guess they got ran up on. They couldn't do shit, right? Who? They they took four revolvers. Taken to the robbery. They didn't take them from the uh, bank. Taken by the gang. Yeah, to they the had robbery. Been taken by the gang. To the robbery. Wait. Looks like they took they took guns from the people in the bank, and then the serial numbers from those guns that were taken. Right. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. Read it. Yeah. 
Okay, let's let's do this again. The FBI further learned that four revolvers had been taken by the gang. The descriptions and serial numbers of these weapons were carefully noted since they might prove a valuable link to the men responsible for the crime. So this reads like they know the serial numbers of the weapons and they're they're going to be um, on the lookout for those popping up. Right. In the hours immediately following the robbery, the underworld began to feel that the heat, the underworld began to feel the heat of the investigation. So everybody the heat is, is on. Everybody else is like, the heat is on. It's kind of messing everybody else up. Well, now, yeah, well, I mean, ain't no nobody in the underworld going to take those guns if that's what we're saying here is that they were stolen from the Brinks. Stolen place. from the Brinks place. Plus, that's uh, that's unwanted heat by all the other people that are doing other shit because now everybody's getting looked at a little bit more. You know, they know who's breaking laws and who's not. Well-known Boston hoodlums were picked up and questioned by police. Popos. From Boston, the pressure quickly spread to other cities nationwide. Probably just Eastern Coast. Right there, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they're questioning anybody in like um, Albuquerque or something. Yeah, they're probably going to like Philly, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, New York, Jersey. <laughs> yeah. That would be the place that would check, <laughs> that right? Vetting <would> <laughs> <laughs> uh, criminals throughout Vetting. the United States found found their activities during mid-January the subject of official inquiry. Ooh, veteran criminals do. Right. They're like uh, the, the, the rookies were like, yeah, we're only rookies. We're good. Right. <laughs> we, we don't need to worry about this stuff. They're not looking at us. See? Wait, this is what we've been fearing all along, guys. It's finally <laughs> happening. These youngsters, youngsters. Youngsters. These youngsters are screwing our whole system up. What the mm. older guy should have done is got all together and oh. took out. Who's, who's to say? We don't even know who it is yet. Who's to say that these guys aren't older guys? Right. First of all, so yeah, it's in Boston. Banks. It's in Boston in 1950s. So I'm assuming it has something to do with the Irish mafia. Right. He's most, I was going to say he's most likely so, Irish. Uh, since Brinks was located in a heavily populated tenement section, many hours were consumed in interviews to locate persons in the neighborhood who might possess information of possible value. Right. A systematic check of current and past Brinks employees was undertaken. Obviously, you got to start always an inside job, right? Uh, personnel of the three-story building housing the Brinks offices were questioned, obviously. Inquiries were made concerning salesmen, messengers, and others who had called at Brinks and might know its physical layout, right. as well as operational procedures. Right, so now look at They're going everywhere. Even people that like service um refrigerators or anything that any anything they've ever served us and any had a service call to come into that building they if they know where an entrance is or they right. know they've been on the second third floor they, everybody's getting interviewed already dude this is like exactly like oceans 11 or whatever it is pretty much yeah every aspect of anything down to down to the uh the dish boy coming out and emptying something you know or you know if you're robbing a restaurant <laughs> wow down to the the waitress, and you know what time she. Well, they did know the uh, routines of all the floor members and shit. That's what I'm saying the robbers did. But I'm talking about these are the police questioning everybody that's ever been in the building. Oh, Every, anybody that's did. ever ordered a or delivered a pizza to the second floor, they probably wouldn't question him too because he knows a little bit of the layout of the building as well. It should be yeah, police. I work. mean, that's right. You would think. Yeah, talk to anybody and everybody. An immediate effort also was made to obtain descriptive data concerning the missing cash and securities. Immediate effort. Immediate. We got to have really good effort, and it has to be immediate. Would be a better word to say that immediate effort. I don't like the way. Immediate. They immediately. They immediately set out to get descriptive data. There you go. I don't like the word effort. It's because you never put any in. Uh, Brinks customers were contacted. For information regarding the packaging and shipping materials they use. They're like, we need to know everything you use to uh, package and ship materials. That's exactly what you just said. Right. All identifying marks placed on currency and securities by the customers were noted. Inappropriate stops were placed at banking institutions across the nation. So we're getting a little uh, smart here and trying to jump on something before it turns into something, right? The way I see it. Trying that, to not have it happen again, pretty well, much. Yeah, that's not a one-time thing that's happening, obviously. They're going to continue on doing it. So how are we going to stop this? What are we going to do? Oh, okay. So they contacted all the customers and was like, did you put anything right. on like the notes or whatever that you sent out? So that way, they're, now they're circulating across the nation. So if this gets purchased here or tries to get cashed in here, right. this is from the Brinks robbery. So you guys better call us. Right. right. And dude, these guys They're are going down to everything. everything. Uh, the Brinks case was front page news, obviously. 
even before Brinks Incorporated offered a one hundred thousand incorporated. Is that a company? I think it, I don't think there's supposed to be that uh, comma there. Even before Brinks Incorporated, Brinks Inc. I think Incorporated is a country a company. Even before Brinks what? Incorporated offered a one hundred thousand reward. So before Brinks did this Incorporated company, whatever it is. Mm. Offered a one hundred thousand dollar reward for information leading to the arrest. Maybe it's like a parent company or something. Right. Uh, leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons responsible. The case had captured the imagination of millions of Americans. Imagination. Yeah. Um, Why wouldn't you? It's nineteen fifties. Right. They, they got, got nothing else to do. Well-meaning persons throughout the country began sending the FBI <laughs> tips. They been sending them tips, this in quotation marks, and theories, which they hope would assist in the investigation. Yeah, you know, there's some dude listening to the radio like, well, you know, officers, I think this could possibly be what they did. This like, could dude, be it. Joe Schmo. Just, I bet there was a lot of stuff like that. Uh, oh, I guarantee I, it was. I guarantee it. Wow. Yeah, I've been listening to this news story for the past week, and well, here's what I think. For example, from a citizen in California. Oh, geez. <laughs> we got an example. All right. All right. Here comes a uh, suggestion that the loot might be concealed in the Atlantic Ocean near Boston. <laughs> a detailed survey of the Boston waterfront previously had made uh, had been made by the FBI. Really? Well, yeah. I can't see them stashing it in the water. They're going to want to get rid of it. Well, I guess you got to sit on it for a little bit, right? Well, they already did a survey of it before. Well, that's what I'm saying. But still, the, the fact that they even did that is kind of a little outrageous. I don't think anybody's right. putting it in the ocean. So there's been kind of shit like this going on for a while then, huh? No, after this case, they've already uh, did the waterfront. Before it. Before this guy sent in the suggestion. Yeah, a detailed survey of the Boston waterfront had previously had been already made. been made. Had already been made. Okay. Right. So they already searched the water. Right. Dude, they've done a lot of stuff. They don't even do this stuff nowadays. Like, no. Why is it so thorough? I guess $2.53 million. Dude, back in, cops were cops. <laughs> That's true. Well, <laughs> they did their job. Well, cops were pretty dirty back then, too. Detectives, I would say. Detectives were actually detectives. Former how, many, how many on them detective team was the stereotypical uh, Drunk. alcoholic um, right, lose lost his family because of his job and right. you know depressed and probably has been probably all of them. You know there was at least two or three has been um, detectives on this case waiting to at solve least, it so they could get their names back in the least, uh, get their and names a, back and a desperate uh, police commissioner or right. whatever you know right uh, mm. it's terrible. Not terrible. At least they care enough, I guess. If only for their own uh, benefit, at least you're getting something done, I guess. Until they feel safe again and then they slack. Inmates at the institutions reported conversations <laughs> they had overheard <laughs> while incarcerated with concerned the robbing of Brinks. They're like, oh, I heard I heard plenty of stories about mm. people wanting to rob Brinks. I mean, which you probably gonna. Right? right, like how many people, first of all, yeah, how is that even credible? How many it's people, first one how many people it. have been like, Dude, the perfect robbery would be Brinks. I mean, I'm right. sure that's uh, a hand, uh, like a dime a dozen conversations there. It's so heavily guarded and, and bulletproof. Right. Well, it can apparently, be it wasn't even guarded. Right. I don't think it wasn't what even. What was going on right. there? This might have been why they made it the way it is today. Well, it's an office building, so it wasn't even like. Oh, the truck. But you would think yeah, the even the office building, I got more, obviously, millions of dollars in there. Why wouldn't it? Where were all these security guards? That should have been heavily guarded like a military. You would think. I mean, all these leads that these people said from the inmates, they all checked out. And guess what? <laughs> None of them had fruits. No fruit was yielded from those. <laughs> no fruits was yielded. Uh, many other types of information were received, obviously. A man of modest means in Bayonne, New Jersey, was reported to be spending large sums of money in nightclubs, buying new automobiles, and otherwise exhibiting newly found wealth. Oh, so this guy out of nowhere pops up, starts getting strippers and... Okay. A I mean, thorough that's... investigation was made concerning his whereabouts on the evening of January 17th, 1950. He was not involved in the Brinks robbery. Yeah, not involved in the he robbery. He could have been playing the stocks or something. Yeah, I think he's got something, oh, something else. He could have been, been hit the lotto. Could have hit playing the stocks or something. I guess. If I were to come up with, like, say I went to the casino when we go. Isn't that crazy? This dude's just living his best life. Right. And then he gets a knock on the door by fucking the feds right. and if by, he's by freaking the feds and if like, he's why are you spending all your money? Now he's gonna hand <laughs> now, now, now he's gonna literally hand over his documents and his bank statements and all that shit, dude, just to prove that I didn't take part in this robbery. I mean, I mean, you would gladly do it if you didn't, right. though, right? Right. I mean, I have no really no problem with that. I can understand 
first of all, it had to be a valid reason just because. For one, everybody in the nation knows that this Brinks robbery just happened. I would not be even. Especially, yeah, when something like that. Spending a lot of money at all. Right. When something like that. Yeah, lay low. No matter who you are, you're innocent, um, legit. Yeah, or you're a millionaire. Just you better hold off on the big spending for a while, Jack. I would say, but so. that's sadly not the case. Clearly not. And it's usually the idiots that are doing that. They get noticed. Well, the idiot that did it didn't have no part in it, apparently. So apparently, apparently, rumors from the underworld pointed suspicion at several criminal gangs. Members of the Purple Gang of the 1930s, which y'all know, found that there were renewed interest in their activities. Another old there gang, was renewed interest in their activities. Right. Right. Another old gang, which had specialized in hijacking bootleg whiskey in Boston area during the prohibition, became the subject of inquiries. Again, the FBI's investigation resulted merely in elimination of more possible suspects. Hey man, you gotta do what you gotta do. Cross so these like, guys out. What do we gotta do? Let's how far can we go back? It's 1950. We gotta go at least 20 years. Right. Cross these guys out. How about the it, purple so. gang? Now <laughs> definitely not the purple gang. They're, they're all what? <laughs> dead or or yeah or old right as yeah. hell well, what about uh these guys that did uh that in boston nah well many tips were received from anonymous <laughs> persons obviously on the night of january 17th 19th <laughs> i wasn't saying obviously on the night of january 17th but obviously from the anonymous persons tipped, obviously. Um, on the night of january 17th 1952 exactly two years after the crime occurred this is two years later now. Uh, the FBI's Boston office received an anonymous telephone call from an individual who claimed he was sending a letter identifying the Brinks robbers. Oh, information received from this individual. Information received from this individual linked nine well-known hoodlums with the crime. After, after careful checking, the FBI eliminated eight of the suspects. Hoodlums, hoodlums was uh, a widely oh, okay. suspect then. After like, careful checking, the FBI eliminated eight yeah. of the suspects. The ninth man had long been a principal suspect. Oh. Of the hundreds of New England hoodlums contacted by the FBI in the weeks immediately following the robbery, few were willing to be interviewed. Occasionally, an offender who was facing a prison term would boast that he had hot. You get me released? Hot shit. You get me released and drop all charges, and I'll solve the case in no time. <laughs> That's what they'd say. Right. One man, uh, one Massachusetts racketeer, a man whose moral code mirrored his long years in the underworld, confided to the agents who were interviewing him. He says, if I knew who pulled the job, I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd be too busy trying to figure out a way to lay my hands on some of the loot. In his determination to overlook no possibility, the FBI contacted various resorts throughout the United States for information concerning persons known to possess unusually large sums of money following the robbery. Uh, racetracks and gambling establishments also were covered in the hope of finding some of the loot in circulation. This phase of the investigation greatly disturbed many gamblers. Of course it would. A number of them discontinued their operations. Others indicated a strong desire that the robbers be identified and apprehended. Look at them. So now they got even the gamblers uh, about ready to turn the robber people in. Right. Just so they can... Uh, Go about their business. The mass information gathered during the early weeks of the investigation was continuously sifted. All efforts to identify the gang members through the chauffeur's hat, the rope, and adhesive tape, which had been left in Brinks, proved unsuccessful. So you tell me they couldn't even dust for the fingerprints that were on the metal container of the tape? Maybe they were wearing gloves. That's true, right? We did say that, right? February 5th, 1950. However, a police officer in Somerville, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, recovered one of the four revolvers which had been taken by the robbers. Oh, so they got one. Oh, taken by at, right. from Brinks, right. Right, 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 right. Investigation established that this gun, together with another rusty revolver, uh, had been found on the 4th of February, 1950, by a group of boys who were playing on a sandbar at the edge of the Mystic River in Somerville. Mystic River in Somerville. So now... Uh, so wait, they just found the rusty revolver or they found both guns? They found it together with another rusty revolver. So the, this gun, along with the rusty revolver, had been found on February 4th. By right. the boys. All right. Okay. I'll take that. In Somerville. It was because, Yeah, the cop went and picked it up the next day from the boys, apparently. I don't know why it took a, a whole day to go get it, but... Right. Well, shortly after these two guns were found, one of them was placed in a trash barrel and was taken to the city dump. The other gun was picked up by the officer and identified as having been taken during the Brinks robbery. So how'd the other one get taken to a dump? Did the boys leave him there? And then... Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, that don't make no sense right there. A detailed search for additional weapons was made at the Mystic River. The results were negative. 
shortly after these two guns. Were so they had to have, the boys had to have left them there, and then overnight, the rusty one got placed in a trash barrel. Who put them in the trash barrel? Wait, was one already in the trash barrel? One of them was placed in a trash barrel, and the other was taken to the city dump. The other no. gun was picked up by the One of them was placed in a trash barrel and taken to the city dump. So did they find them? Did the oh. boys find it in the trash barrel already, and it just, before the cops got there, got taken to the city dump already? Or did one of somebody else put it there after the boys found it? I think the boys probably put it in there, and it was probably the rusty one. Hmm. And they took the, the good one home. No, they, the, the officer found it at the river. The other gun was picked up by the officer. The boys just found them. I think they probably oh, they called them there. Yeah, I think they probably uh, just called it in. And by the time the cops got there, the rusty or whatever one was in the barrel had already been gone to the dump. Right. I think it was probably the rusty one. Somebody uh, was like, ah, throw this away. Right. Okay. So they didn't find any more weapons at the Mystic River. Through the interviews of persons in the vicinity of the Brinks offices on the evening of the 17th of January, 1950, the FBI learned that a 1949 Green Ford stake body truck with a canvas top had been parked near the Prince Street door of Brinks at approximately the time of the robbery. Okay. From the size of the loot and the number of men involved, it was logical that the gang might have used this truck, obviously. Right. This lead was pursued intensively. Intensively. Like there can't, boys, how many green uh, Ford um, canvas top trucks are running right. around there, you know? Stack body, whatever that means. Um, on March 4th, 1950, pieces of an, of an identical truck were found at a dump in Staunton, Massachusetts. Uh-oh. Really? An acetylene, acetylene torch had been used to cut up the truck, and it appeared that a sledgehammer also had been used to smash many of the heavy parts, such as the motor. Truck pieces were concealed in fiber bags when found. Had the ground not been frozen, the person or persons who abandoned the bags would probably have attempted to bury them. Right. Okay, so yeah, um, innocent people just don't chop up a car and beat the hell out of the motor with sledgehammers, right? The truck found at the dump had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston. Oh, there we go. Fenway on, Park in right, Boston. On the 3rd of November, 1949. There we go. All efforts to identify the persons responsible for the theft and the persons who had cut up the truck were unsecessful. Uh-huh. I mean, back then, you really could. It was tough. Tough. Tough to solve these Well, cars. I don't know, unless you're uh, Bonnie and Clyde and you leave pill bottles right. in the... Um, Truck and all that stuff, you know. Stupid. The fiber bags used to conceal the pieces were identified as having been used as containers for beef bones shipped from South America to a gelatin manufacturing company in Massachusetts. Okay, so they got to lead where the bags come from. All right. Uh, so they know, hey, we got to look around old Massey. Somewhere in Massey. Wherever, well, uh, they're already in this, Massey. All right. That's right. They're in Boston. <laughs> uh, thorough inquiries were made concerning the disposition of the bags after their receipt by the Massachusetts firm. Mm-hmm. This phase of the investigation was pursued exhaustively oh, again. Extensively, exhaustively, dastardly, I mean, dastardly <laughs> bastards. <laughs> it proved unproductive. Nonetheless, the finding of the truck parts at Stalton, Stalton, Massachusetts was to prove valuable break in the investigation. Course, They're like, right? we got something. We can, if we can just. Let's go back to where the truck's at. Mm-hmm. Two of the participants in the Brinks robbery lived in the Stoughton area. Uh, after truck parts were you found, don't shit ad- where you eat, man. Right after the truck was found, additional suspicion was attached to these men. Of course, it was. Mm, you know these boys; they like to hang out around here a lot. Mm-hmm. And they were already on our investigation list, right. so suspect list. Mm-hmm. Well, after the investigation developed and thousands of leads were followed to dead ends, the broad field of possible suspects gradually began to narrow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Among the early suspects was Anthony Pino. Pino, an alien who had been whoa, an alien who had been a principal suspect in numerous major robberies and burglaries in Massachusetts. Pino was known in, known in the underworld as an excellent case man, which means he was uh, right. casing the banks and checking out right. and all that. He come up with the plans, uh, and it was said that the casing of the Brinks offices bore his trademark. Oh, okay. Pino, What's his trademark. I'm sure they know though. All right. Pino had been questioned as to his whereabouts on the evening of January 17th, 1950, and he provided a good alibi, though. Ooh. Huh. I mean, you're not going to be a successful case man and not have good alibis. Right. The alibi, in fact, was almost too good. Mm, you know what they say. Mm-hmm. Pino had <laughs> been at his home in the Roxbury section of Boston until approximately 7 p.m. Then he walked to the nearby liquor store of, of Joseph McGinnis. Mm-hmm. Subsequently... He engaged in a conversation with McGinnis and a Boston police officer. Boston police officer. Mm. The officer verified the meeting. He's like, yeah, I'll start going around seven. All right. The alibi was strong, but not conclusive. 
The police officer said he had been talking to McGinnis first, and Pino uh, arrived later to join them. The trip from the liquor store in Roxbury to the Brinks offices would make about 15 minutes. Okay, so that's conceivable, right? Pino could have been at McGinnis's liquor store shortly after 7.30 on 17th of January 1950 and still have participated in the robbery. It's mm. true. Could have did what he had to do and knows that this cop hangs out at the liquor store around this time all the time. All right. So said, I got myself an alibi. Mm. Look how smart that is, though. He's like, yeah, I'm going to talk to this guy and the police guy. Popo and everything. Mm-hmm. And what of McGinnis himself? Well, commonly regarded as a dominant figure in the Boston underworld, McGinnis previously had been convicted of robbery and narcotics violations. Uh, so this is the store owner that the scops just chatting with right. and everything. So uh, underworld sources described him as fully capable of planning and executing the Brinks robbery. Right. Uh, he, too, had left his home shortly before 7 on the night of the robbery and met the Boston police officer soon after. Mm. Uh, if local hoodlums were involved, it was difficult to believe that McGinnis could be as ignorant of the crime as he had claimed. I think... Uh... McGinnis was there, and then Pino was like uh, going, and then the cop was there. He was just like, "All right, just be cool, right?" Talk to him like nothing ever happened. And McGinnis is like, yeah. "Or McGinnis, because it's his story. He knew that a cop comes around there all right. the time, so right. he's like, this is what me and you will do.'" Mm-hmm. That's also plausible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, neither Pino nor McGinnis was known to be the type of hoodlum who would undertake so potentially dangerous crimes without the best strong arm support available so they're like not just gonna do something like that and not be totally without have some uh, firepower backup right uh two of the prime suspects whose nerve and gun handling experience suited them for the brinks robbery were joseph james o'keefe and stanley elbert gusiora 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 but it's probably like shora G G G U S C I O R A Gashora. It's either uh, it's like Sammy Sosha. Not so yeah, Sammy Sosha. It's all that weird. So Shora. Well, O'Keefe's definitely uh, or Gusiora. O'Keefe's definitely um, Irish. Irish and Gashora is probably it sounds Gusiora. That's Italian or right, something, right? Right. Was to say Gusiora. Gusiora. Shora. Gusiora. 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 Anyhow, O'Keefe and Gusiora <laughs> reportedly had worked, air quotes, air quotes, worked together on a number of workbooks. <laughs> workbooks? Uh, <laughs> no. Worked together on a number of occasions. Oh, okay. Both had served prison sentences, and both were well-known to the underworld figures on the East Coast. So all these guys in question, obviously, are in question for other other possible crimes. All right, but they were already on the suspect list, but now right. it's getting a little bit closer to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, O'Keefe's reputation for nerve was legend. Reports had been received a legend that he had held up several gamblers in the Boston area and had been involved in shakedowns of bookies. Like Gusiora, O'Keefe was known to have associated with Pino prior to the Brinks robbery. Well, both of these strong-armed suspects had been questioned by Boston authorities following the robbery, but neither had too convincing an alibi either. So, okay, uh, O'Keefe claimed that he left his hotel room in Boston approximately se- oh, uh, Everybody's leaving at 7, seven. right? Oh, about 7 o'clock. About 7 o'clock. Following the robbery, authorities attempted unsuccessfully to locate him at the hotel. Mm. Huh. So they already, like, as soon as after the robbery was done, they already knew this dude was in town and went right for him, right, huh? Right, wow. Uh, his explanation was he had been drinking at a bar in Boston, and Gusiora also claimed to have been drinking that evening. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, here's uh, maybe something that could be on both of these guys' sides. The families of O'Keefe and Gusiara resided in the vicinity of Stoughton, Massachusetts. No, it's not on their side. That's where they found the truck, and that's where Pino and uh, oh, McGinnis yeah, lived. That's right. So, yeah. Okay. So, so now maybe. all four of these guys are connected to the area where the truck is found. Oh no! When the pieces of 1949 green Ford steak body truck were found at the dump in Stoughton. On the 4th of March in 1950, additional emphasis was placed on the investigation concerning them. Uh, They're yep, like, this is yep. what we need to focus on, folks. Yep. Local officers searched their homes, but no evidence linking them with the truck or the robbery was ever found. Well, at this moment. Right. In April 1950, the FBI received information indicating that part of the Brinks loot was hidden in the home of a relative of O'Keefe in Boston. Uh-oh. A federal search warrant was obtained, and the home was searched by agents on April 27, 1950. Several hundred dollars were found hidden in the house but could not be identified as part of the loot. I mean, come on. Several I, hundred. Hidden, though. So, right. so what? Love from a different you. robbery, obviously, or from a, from a different holdup or something. People hid money back then. That's 1950. true. 1950. Right. 
Could have been like a rainy day jar or something. You know, you know, never know. Especially in that part of Massey, Boston, Stoughton, Stoughton, and uh, Boston. And what else? South was? Boston and stuff. Yeah. That's where the Irish. Irish. Freaking Irish, man. Mm-hmm. Ah, June. Second, 1950, O'Keefe and Goussiara left Boston by automobile for the alleged purpose of visiting the grave of Goussiara's brother in Missouri. Apparently, they had planned a leisurely trip with an abundance of extracurricular activities. Mm, how do you we rank like, that out of one to ten? <laughs> they will be doing that. When yeah, I'm sure. Back. June 12, 1950, they were arrested at Tawanda, Pennsylvania. And guns and clothing, which were the loot from burglaries at Kane and Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, were found in the possession. They're like, so these uh, right. quote-unquote extracurricular activities were uh, going around robbing other banks and uh, stuff like that. Huh? I'll take it. Okay, well, following their arrest, a former bondsman in Boston made frequent trips to Tawanda in an unsuccessful effort to secure their release on bail. Uh, September 8, 1950, O'Keefe was sentenced to three years at the Bradford County Jail at Tawanda and fined $3,000 for violation of the Uniform Fire Firearms Act. Okay. Although Gusiora was acquitted of the charges against him in Tawanda, he was removed to McKean County, Pennsylvania, to stand trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods. Uh-oh. So on October 11, 1950, he was sentenced to serve from 5 to 20 years in the Western Pennsylvania Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. 5 uh, to 20. So these two guys are locked up, but uh, still not for the Brinks crime, which no. which you know they want. Right. So FBI is like, eh, we'll get you for him anyway. Like, we'll at least, at least lock him up for a little bit until we, you know, at least they're on. The, at least they're in jail. At least, right? right? And we, we'll get that. We'll get that other uh, crime on there. Mm. But you will serve that time, which will be more than twenty years, probably. <laughs> I'm assuming so. Even after these convictions, O'Keefe and Gucciara continued to seek their release. Between 1950 and 1954, the underworld occasionally rumbled with rumors that pressure was being exerted upon Boston hoodlums to contribute money for these criminals' legal fight against the charges in Pennsylvania. Let's contribute. The names of Pino McGinnis, Adolph Jazz Maffey, first time hearing this guy, mm-hmm. and Henry Baker. I think we heard of Henry Baker before. Mm-hmm. Well, not in this story. Uh, were frequently mentioned in these rumors, and it was said that they had been th- with O'Keefe on the... The big, big lie. Job. I mean, the big job. <laughs> the big job. Well, despite the lack of evidence and witnesses upon which the court proceedings could be based, as the investigation progressed, there was little doubt that O'Keefe had been one of the central figures in the Brinks robbery. Pino was also linked with the robbery, and there was every reason to suspect Keefe. O'Keefe felt Pino was turning his back on him, and Uh-oh. now that O'Keefe was in jail. Uh oh. So you know what happens. You know, uh, it always happens. See, the, the good, the good thing for uh, the law side is these guys are in jail, and you know they're going in there. Telling them shit that this guy said mm-hmm. and what this guy said. So now they're flipping. Oh, yep. Yep. Jeez. That's how it works. Well, you don't ever want to feel that you're you're not uh, being treated fairly by your former partners. Right. Especially when one's in jail and one's not. Well, these guys are both in jail. Not uh, not Pino. O'Keefe. Yeah, but not Pino. Pino, yeah. He still went to jail and... Um, oh, Pino went to jail? Yeah, remember? Pino and... Uh, Oh, no, not Pino. Oh. Uh, Gusiora went to jail yeah. in the other county in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh, Keefe's in jail right now. Pino he felt out. Pino was turning his back on him. Right, 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 right. So that's even worse. Mm-hmm. It always happens that way, though. One guy goes <sighs> yeah. out and you got nothing. You don't even know what it's like on the street since you've been gone. Fuck, I guess I mean you. It's like uh, in um, Goodfellas. Right. Come on, Karen. They don't care about us. <laughs> Both O'Keefe and Gucciara had been interviewed on several occasions concerning the Brinks robbery, but they had claimed complete ignorance. Like, of course. What's that? Right. What, what's Brinks? What's robbery? <laughs> what's an interview? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in the hope that a, um, they claimed complete ignorance in the hope that a, a wide breach might have developed between the two criminals who were in jail in Pennsylvania, and the gang members who were enjoying the luxuries of a free life in Massachusetts. FBI agents again visited Gutierrez and O'Keefe, even in their jail cells. However, they showed no respect for law enforcement. Mm. They're not going to. So like I said, they're attempting to flip them over and then uh, get their testimony. So we knew that was going to happen. In pursuing the underworld rumors concerning the principal suspects in the Brinks case, the FBI... The FBI succeeded in identifying more probable members of the gang. Uh-oh. When well, you know there's got to be at least six. There was uh, 
the aforementioned Adolph Jazz Maffey, one of the hoodlums who allegedly was being pressured to contribute money for the legal battle of O'Keefe and Guciora against Pennsylvania. Yeah, we know that. He uh, had been questioned concerning his whereabouts on Jan- the day of the robbery. He was unable to provide any specific account where he had been. So. Oh, see, that's rough. So this guy didn't even bother to have an uh, alibi. Didn't even had, try. Right. He's, He's like, like, oh, eh. did you get your story together? If they wouldn't want to talk to me, they'd done it by now. <laughs> Thought wrong. Henry Bank. Anyway, Henry Banker. <laughs> FBI. Oh, shit. Yeah. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> Just tell me you don't remember. <laughs> All right. I do not recall that day. I'm a heavy drinker. No. No, you no. police. <laughs> you, you tell me. You tell me. <laughs> uh, anyhow. Oh, Hank Baker, another veteran criminal who was rumored to be kicking into the Pennsylvania Defense Fund, uh, had spent a number of years of his adult life in prison. Uh. Don't they all? Right. He had been released on parole from the Norfolk, Norfolk, Massachusetts prison colony on August 22nd, Damn. 1940. It's a whole ass colony. Only five months before the robbery. You know, they can't stay out of prison long before they're on their next big score. Well, apparently at the prison colony, Baker was serving two concurrent terms of four to ten years. Imposed in 1944 for breaking and entering in larceny. Uh, and for possession of burglar tools. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of tools do you have, burglar? Burglar tools. Burglar. Looks like a hammer to me. Or Probably a, had like a lockpick set yeah, or something like oh, that. You, you know, know, they had lockpick sets yeah. like crazy back then, dude. That was like a major thing. Even old Dick Tracy used to have them, didn't he? Don't know. Never saw Dick Tracy. At the time of Baker's release in 1949, Pino was on hand to drive him back to Boston. There goes Pino. I mean, when you're all together and right. come on, guys. I already know this. Question by Boston police on the day following the robbery. Baker claimed that he had eaten dinner with his family on the evening of the robbery and then left home about 7 p.m. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't these guys mix it up a little? Right. I don't know. It was almost maybe closer oh, to eight. Geez. Just to walk around the neighborhood for about two hours. Since he claimed to have met no one and had to stop nowhere during his walk, he actually could have been doing anything between 7 and 9 on the night of the crime, obviously. Yankin. Prominent among the other strong suspects was Vincent, Vincent James Costa, Who's the brother-in-law of Pino? Okay. Mm. Oh, jeez. So this dude's like, yeah, I left my house at 7 p.m. to walk around the neighborhood where absolutely nobody saw me, and I stopped absolutely nowhere. So really, I could have done anything in those two hours. So mm. I don't have an alibi. <laughs> right. Jeez. And it'd be different if he was known to walk the neighborhood. Right. If they asked neighbors, like, hey, he walks all the time. He went out as usual. If it was smart, if they were planning this robbery, like the, the beginning of the story said, right, where keep, yeah. it was heavily planned, right. he would have done that for two or three months before. Right. Every day, leave his house at 7 and go on a walk. Or around approximately 7. Oh, yeah, <laughs> around 7. <laughs> Costa was associated with Pino and the operation of a motor terminal and a lottery in Boston. So <sighs> all these guys are connected to each other somehow with mm. some sort of criminal activity. Mm. Extracurricular activities, as they would say. What do they call that? Six degrees of separation. Exactly. He had been convicted. He had been convicted of armed robbery in 1940. Because of course he was. Served several months in the Massachusetts State Reformatory and the Norfolk, uh, Massachusetts prison prison colony. colony. Also, he was in the prison colony as well. Mm -hmm. Costa claimed that after working at the motor terminal until approximately five. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. Okay. It's okay. He goes out. He worked working, there until five. He's like, I was working at the motor terminal over there until about five. And that was the 17th of January. The night of the robbery. He had gone home to eat dinner. <laughs> then uh, he was like, mm, it was probably around seven. <laughs> I, had to go, I, had to go, I had to go back to work until about nine. So no punch out card, no anything there that, that could have. I uh, can prove that he was working from seven to nine. Right. Every single suspect so far, whatever they did that night, it was approximately seven p.m. was when they when they left. Yeah, but the other, the, um, um, Pino's the only one with the good alibi. The one that well, yeah, he was the one that went and talked to the right, right. cops with McGinnis. Right. So, jeez, the FBI's analysis of the alibis offered by the suspects showed that the hour of seven p.m. on the night of the robbery was frequently mentioned. Well, thank you, cops. Right. You're putting together the same thing that we're putting together here, buds. Uh, O'Keefe had left his hotel at approximately 7. Pino and Baker separately decided to go out at 7. Costa started back to the motor terminal about 7. Other principal suspects were not able to provide any convincing accounts of their activities that evening, though. And since the robbery had taken place between approximately 7.10 and 7.27, it was quite probable that a gang as well-drilled as the Brinks robbers obviously were would have had arranged to rendezvous at a specific time, about 7 o'clock. <laughs> uh, by fixing this time, 
By fixing this time as close as possible to the minute at which the robbery was begin, the robbers would have alibis to cover their activities up to the final moment. But they moment. didn't, though. There are so many holes in their alibis. <sighs> Jeez. Wow. I mean, I, I guess if they're dealing with some stupid cops. And these guys well, weren't known the, criminals. It took place from 710 to 727. And the cop says that he talked to Pino around 730. Right. And they said it only took 15 minutes from the Brinks robbery place to the, where the store was. Right. So he could have easily done the robbery All right. at 710, say. And then, I don't know, though. She left early. So it was probably he got there a little bit after 730. Yeah, he said it was around, right? Right. I don't know, man. <laughs> Criminals. Dumb. Because I'm a criminal. Any doubts which the Brinks gang had that the FBI was on the right track in its investigation were allied. Allayed. Yeah. Were allayed when the federal grand jury began to hearings in Boston, 25th of November, 1952. So now the federal grand jury is going to decide, are we going to indict these? Well, they got to see all the evidence. Are we going to indict these fools? The grand juries are going to be like, why is everybody leaving at seven? All right. Hmm. And these guys are all known criminals. Right. Every one of them has a, a a robbery, and a few of them are in prison right now for crimes. Right, so. they got caught with stuff right from a robbery. Right. I mean, geez, dude, uh, I think we're going to take this case on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's Family Feud. Do you want to pass or play? Yeah. They're like, I think we'll play this time. We're going to play this time. We'll uh, play this Steve. time, Steve. <laughs> play this time, Steve. <laughs> the FBI's jurisdiction to investigate this robbery was based upon the fact that cash checks postal notes and the United States money orders of the Federal Reserve Bank and the Veterans Administration District oh. Office in Boston were included in the loot. So they're like, this is all federal stuff here, guys. Federal Reserve Bank stuff all was right. taken, dude. That's yeah. a federal crime all day long. Well, I'd rather go to federal prison than state prison. Well, still. After nearly three years of investigation, dang, three years, the government hoped that witnesses or participants who had remained mute for so long uh, might finally find their tongues before the grand jury. Unfortunately, this proved to be an idle hope. Oh, of course. They're, not they're, they're all that. criminals. Why would they? Right. And back then, your people loved you, man. And, and back then, the whole neighborhood knew who these people right, were. And they, loved and they them. probably, well, not, or feared them. Or feared them. One feared of the two. Uh, after, both. Right. After I completing, love fearing I love fearing this guy. I fear loving him. <laughs> <laughs> after completing his hearings on January 9, 1953, the grand jury retired to weigh the evidence. In a report which was released on January 16, 1953, the grand jury disclosed that its members did not feel they possessed complete positive information as to the identif- identity of the participants in the bank's robbery because, one, the participants were effectively, effectively disguised, right. and, two, there was a lack of eyewitnesses to the crime itself, and, three, certain witnesses refused to give testimony, and the grand jury was unable to compel them to do so. I mean, I give, so, them, I give them credit. They did seven days deliberating, so... That's a long time to, deli- deli- to deliberate right. a verdict. Because even though the the leaving at 7, everybody left at 7 is suspicious, Still. and a couple of them lived in the same neighborhood where the truck was dumped, they have no DNA evidence, no Nothing. physical evidence Nothing. linking any of them to the actual Nothing. crime. So what can you do? Nothing. Right. You can't do anything. Mm. You know you know they're guilty. Right. Well, you got to follow the law. You got to prove it, man. Follow the law. Prove it. Right. Ten of the persons who appeared before this grand jury breathed much more easily when they learned that no indictments had been returned. Uh, ten of the persons who appeared. Okay. Ten of them. Wow. Yeah, they, they breathe easy, that's for sure. Dang right. So these guys were like, yeah. They're like, we ain't no, we, we, ain't get, did we didn't it. get indicted. Except for O'Keefe and Gutierrez. Oh, well, like, for hey. different ones. And <laughs> we're over here, but we're not getting more time. But, but by this time... It's already three, four years into their sentences. So right. one of them, uh, um, O'Keefe's already almost out. Five years, yeah. So, um, and then they know, hey, we're not getting no more time. Right. On. Uh, okay, where are we at? Following the federal grand jury hearings, the FBI's intense investigation continued. Mm-hmm. I don't think it can, though. They acquitted them, right? They didn't acquit them. They just didn't have the evidence to get them. Charge them, yeah, because grand jury. They never went on trial, so right. it's not like it's double jeopardy or anything. Or what is that? Um, double jeopardy, yeah. Where you can't charge the same yeah. crime twice? Twice. Yeah, so. The FBI's intense investigation continued under J. Edgar Hoover. We don't know about this guy. This guy, dude. This guy. J. Edgar Hoover was convinced that they had identified the actual robbers, but evidence and witnesses had to be found. What we just said, J. Edgar. We already knew that, Edgar. I mean, come on, J. 
While O'Keefe and Gusiora lingered in jail in Pennsylvania, Pino encountered difficulties of his own. Oh, no. Born in Italy in 19... Oh, now we're going to get a backstory on Pino. <laughs> oh, jeez. Nice. Born in Italy in 1907. It's like a... <laughs> right. Oh, jeez. He was a very young child when he entered the United States, but he never became a naturalized citizen. Oh, so they could deport his ass, too, Ooh. huh? Due to his criminal record, the Immigration and Naturalization Service instituted proceedings in 1941 to deport him. Oh, so nine years... After well, nine years before, right? So Crime was in 1950. Years. I know, so it took nine years. Well, this occurred while he was in the state prison at Charleston, Massachusetts, serving sentence for whenever he's done with the burglar tools and stuff. All right. Um. So they didn't even uh, convict him or send him back. Apparently, so they must have let his let him out of prison. Yeah, they had to have. This country's had a uh, this country's had a uh, a nice little uh, history with illegal immigrants and uh, breaking Crime. the law, dude. Always have, always will. Hmm. That prison term, together with Pino's conviction in March of 1928 for carnal abuse of a girl. Oh, what's carnal what abuse carnal of a girl? abuse of a girl, dude? Provided the basis <laughs> for the deportation action. They're like, well, okay, yeah. that's enough. He's like, you can rob people, you can do all this, but you will not carnal abuse you a girl. Carnal, not carnally abuse a girl. <laughs> right, dude. I'm sorry. Come on, man. Pino determined to fight against deportation. Of course. He's like, I will not go back to Italy. <laughs> so he was uh, Italian. So the... Uh, Gusioria guy is obviously Italian, right? right? I would have to say. Wasn't he the brother-in-law or something? He, Which one was no, brother? That wasn't was Gusiora the, the brother-in-law? No, brother-in-law was, uh, what's his face? I think it was Gusiora. It might be Gusiora, but there's another sure. guy that was. Yeah, there was um, Jazz, Maffey, and um, Maffey was Harry Brink, right? Harry Baker or something. Maffey was the brother-in-law, right? Well, I don't think so. I think it was yeah. Gusiora. We'll find out here in a little while. We sure will. Pino determined to fight. Yep, he was determined he's going to fight deportation. Mm-hmm. In the late summer of 1944, he was released from the state prison and was taken into custody by immigration authorities. Okay. Ice. Ice had his ass. And uh, AOC was like, no. <laughs> it's, her, it's her grandma. <laughs> right. AOC, senior. Senior. Senor. Senior, senior. Senorita. <laughs> Senorita Cortez. <laughs> During the preceding year, however, he had filled a petition for pardon. He filed it. Yep. Probably filled it out, too. Yeah. <laughs> he filled out the application for, uh, to get a pardon uh, in the hope of removing one of the criminal convictions from his record. Okay, at well, least one. At least one. In September 1949, his efforts to evade de- deportation met with, was met with success. He was granted a full pardon by the acting governor of Massachusetts. Mm. Oh, I guess an acting I bet you, governor. I bet you that guy's kicking himself, huh? Right. The pardon meant that his record no longer contained the second conviction. Thus, the Immigration and Naturalization Service no longer had grounds to deport him. So, you could apparently have one conviction, right. not two. Or it was the carnal of the girl. Well, neither or. Contained the second. Oh, the, yeah, the thing against so the girl. You're allowed to be here illegally. If you rob places, but if you assault somebody, right. specifically a woman, then we can convict you. But either way, you're allowed. Well, maybe like doing bodily harm to somebody or something. Right. But either way, you're allowed to be here illegally. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. 10th of January, 1953, following his appearance before the federal grand jury in connection with the Brinks case, Pino was taken into custody again as a deportable alien. Oh, see, you know what they did? They were like, we can't get him in this grand jury uh, but now conviction, he, but we'll deport his ass. He keeps on showing up back in the court system. I think that's enough cause to get him out, right? I bet you, too, that while he was in there, you know, we'll keep you here in the United States if you just uh, tell us that you're involved, what happened, who was involved, and uh, we'll keep you here. We won't deport you. Well, the immigration agency, uh, their reasoning for this one now was that Pino had been arrested in December of 1948 for a larceny involving less than $100. Oh, please. Oh, no. They're just going to do some stupid stuff here just to get him out. He received a one-year sentence for this offense. However, on the 30th of January, 1950, the sentence was revoked, and the case was placed on file. So mm-hmm. we're just gonna. So now look at this again. The crime took place what? 1948, two years ago. No, the crime took place February 17th, right? 1950? Right? January 17th. So 13 days after the robbery, the, uh, his sentence... From 1948 was revoked, revoked, and the case was placed on file. Right, placed on file. Huh. Mm. I bet you they're kicking themselves for that, huh? Right. Again, <laughs> people are kicking themselves today. They're like, well, we couldn't get them on that. What makes you think we're going to get them on this? <laughs> right. Put it in the file. On January 12, 1953, Pino was released on bail pending a deportation hearing. 
Okay, yeah, and again, he determined to fight using the argument that his conviction for the 48 larceny offense was not a basis for deportation. Right. Considering the uh, precedent already set by the first time, he's right. Mm -hmm. After surrendering himself in December 1953 in compliance with an Immigration and Natural Relations Service order, he began an additional battle to win release from custody while his case was being argued. Adding to these problems was the constant pressure being exerted upon Pino by O'Keefe from the county jail in Tawanda, Pennsylvania. So um, he's talking to O'Keefe. Right. And O'Keefe's like, dude, you better help me out here. Get me out of here. Do this situation. I don't like how you're treating me, or I'm going to spill the beans. You know, right. that's what he's telling them. It's all unraveling for these guys. Well, especially for O'Keefe and uh, Gucciara, because they've been in prison for four years now. Yeah, but they got nobody else to blame but themselves for that one. Yeah, that's true. And plus, they're off the hook for the, the other one. As of now, right? As of right now. In the deportation fight, which lasted more than two years. So we're in the 1955 now. This robbery was five years ago. Right. So his deportation uh, court case lasted for two years, and he won. Finally, he won again. His case had gone to the highest court in the land. Supreme. Yeah, he was taking it off, so he probably lost a few times, and he kept on going up. Mm-hmm. 11th of April, 1955. How do they do that? That's stupid. Everybody knows every court you're going to put it to is going to deny it, or right. and you're going to repeal it. So just go to the freaking Supreme Court already. You can't go. That to- should be the first court that... Uh, you should have an option. I don't think you're allowed to go to Supreme Court until you've exhausted all I know, but Supreme Court should have that option. We're looking at the case already. We, we, they should be like, well, we know that this court's going to deny it, this court's going to deny it, so might as well just send them up now. Right. If you send them up and you lose, your case is going to be, like, doubled. That's your risk factor. Well, not only that, they're not necessarily, no, that's stupid, but they're wasting all these other resources on the other courts. That the, it's going to be the same until they get to the Supreme Court. Not wasting, no, they're not wasting resources. These are all getting paid for. All these. By taxpayers. By the freaking people in jail. No, not, yeah, the, time, yeah. the, uh, not the time of the all the employees that work at the courthouse and yeah, all the judges. They're, the they're, paying, they're, paying, no, they're a, paying attorney fees. They're paying attorney and fees. Court costs. And then they got to play court costs. Yeah, but who, they ain't paying the salaries, though. Who do you think pays the salaries of these people? It's true. And the court costs ain't going to cover anything. Right. I'll do lunch for a week. Mm. So if it's a renowned case, well, I guess, is this a renowned case? I, I guess it is. Immigration. Right. That's paid for uh, by. The Supreme Court should have had somebody look at it like, this is not going to pass any other court. It's coming to us anyways. Let's just take it on and get it over with. Right. Well, anyway, it ended up going to the Supreme Court. September 11, 1955, the Supreme Court ruled that Pino's conviction. April 11th. Right. April 11th. <laughs> so I just say September. You did. Damn. April 11th, 1955. We already know that's the Supreme Court. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> they ruled that Pino's conviction in 1948 for larceny. Yes, we know what the place been put a file. Yeah. Had not attained such finality as to support an order of deportation. They're like, I'm sorry. <sighs> we would like to. Pino said that at the beginning, guys. Another two years wasted. Right. Well, during the period in which Pino's deportation troubles were mounting, O'Keefe completed his sentence at Tawanda, Pennsylvania. Told you, this guy's already out. So two more years after he was getting pissed at Pino. Oh, well, now he's uh, released to McKean County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, no. uh, authorities early in January 1954 to stand trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving like stolen goods. Yeah, when that's, he got out. That's the charges that Gutierrez got waiting. charged on. Yeah, they were just waiting. Because yeah. they're like, we're going to get you two more. Well, O'Keefe was also confronted with a detainer filed by Massachusetts authorities. Oh. The detainer involved O'Keefe's violation of probation in connection with a conviction in 1945 for concealed weapons. Really? This dude this dude is just in all sorts of legal uh, right. mumbo-jumbo. Once huh? he got caught with one little tiny little thing, all everything the else, ones. they're like, yep, let's just... Now... That's how you keep them in. Now the, uh, all these local districts and these police districts and stuff are passing them around like a drugged-up whore at a frat party. Dude. That's smart, though. They're like, <laughs> we know we can't get them on the major crime, but we got all this little pay stuff. We can keep them we in prison We can keep them like afloat in the years. prison system until we figure this shit out, at right. least, right? Right. So we got it. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> He's the prison prison system's bitch. <laughs> prison system bitch right now. They're tossing around uh, O'Keefe like they would do. Drunken frat girl at a frat party. Exactly. Man, or drunken, drunken college student at a frat party. Passing her around. Sad. Not really, but still. What are you going to do? It's funny. Before his trial in McKean County, he was released on $17,000 bond. Ooh, they let him out. Mm. While on bond, he returned to Boston. January 23rd, 1954. He appeared at the Boston Municipal Court on the probation. At least he's going to court and stuff, and he's not running, I guess. I got to go to Boston and get rid of this. 
When this case was continued until April 1st, 1954, Keefe was released on a $1,500 bond. So he's on a bond in two different cases. Two different cases <laughs> out. Well, I mean, he spent five years in jail or right. prison. So now he's at least he's walking the streets for a little bit. Right. And he's getting a hold of his PO every, yeah. every day and all that good stuff. When this case was continued, okay, it was April 1st, right. 1954. He was released 15. on the $1,500 bond. During his brief stay in Boston, he was observed to contact other members of the robbery oh, gang. Oh, you no. moron. They knew it. Like, watch, I bet it's gonna be like two days. No, I think it's only like the, three hours. The, I was gonna say, the, within the first half right. of the day, he's released. They all got a bet on him and stuff. Yeah. Got a pool. Right. He needed money for his defense against the charges in McKean County, and it was obvious that he had developed a bitter attitude toward a number of his close underworld associates. Of course he did. Well, he returned to February and returned to Pennsylvania in February 1954 to stand trial, and he was found guilty of burglary by the state court in McKean County on March 4th, 1954. Mm. Uh, he uh, put an appeal in and he was released on $15,000 bond. Who's the bondsman that keeps bonding this guy out? Uh, you can be found guilty and put an appeal and be released. Screw that. You're found guilty. You should... Yeah, once you put it on appeal, though, yeah. your sentence doesn't hold up because you appealed it. Mm. They accepted the repeal. I know there's a lot of people that are on appeal and they're still in jail. Apparently, they decided he wasn't a flight risk since he's been showing up for court and stuff. So. All right, that's true, yeah. O'Keefe immediately returned to Boston to await the results of this appeal, and within two months of his return, a number, another member of the gang suffered a legal setback. Jazz Maffey was convicted of federal income tax evasion. Oh, oh that income tax evasion. Um, began serving a nine-month sentence at the federal penitentiary at Danbury, Connecticut, in June of 1954. Not bad. Nine months. Nine not months. Bad. do what? Five? All right. Mm. Underworld rumors allege... That Maffey and Henry Baker were high on O'Keefe's list. So O'Keefe's looking for some uh, revenge on his fellow guys. He's like, if I'm going down... It looks like he's not too mad at Pino anymore. But well, I guarantee he's telling these guys... He don't like Maffey or uh, Baker. Because they know they're all still being investigated. But I guarantee he's telling these guys, if I go down... For more than... Yeah. For, if I go down out of this, you guys are coming with I'm spilling well, beans and everything. Gucciara get for that same crime? five to 20 years. Five to 20, so... Yeah, he's going to do another five. At least, yeah. Right. Wow, he could end up spreading. Yeah. So regardless, uh, um, O'Keefe is going to jail for another 10, 15 years. At least. And already did five. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anyhow, we're back to Maffey and Baker not being on O'Keefe's good list. Nope. Because they had beaten him out of a large amount of money. Mm-hmm. If Baker heard these rumors... He did not wait around very long to see whether they were true. Yep. Soon after O'Keefe's return in March of 1954, Baker and his wife left Boston on a vacation. Air quotes. O'Keefe paid his respects, air quotes, <laughs> to other members of the Brinks gang in Boston on several occasions in the spring of 1954, and it was obvious to the agents handling the investigation he was trying to solicit some money. Right. He had to, right? He was so cold and persistent in these dealings with his co-conspirators that the agents hoped he might be attempting to obtain a large amount of money, perhaps a share of the Brinks loot. That's what I was going to say. Shouldn't he have a share of the loot? That's what I'm saying. That's probably what he's doing. He's like, I want my money. Right. Where's my money, Brian? Where's my money, It's been five years, dude. Where's my money? It's been five years. Where's this money at? Right. He should have interest on it. Something. For being in prison, for taking the fall. It's ridiculous, dude. During these weeks, O'Keefe renewed his association with the Boston Racketeer who had actively solicited funds in the defense of O'Keefe and Gucciara in 1950. Soon the underworld rang with startling news concerning this pair. It was reported that on May 18, 1954, O'Keefe and his racketeer associate took Vincent Costa to a hotel room and held him for a several thousand dollars ransom. Oh. That's it. Several thousand. Do like a hundred thousand or something like that. They So they took Costa ransom. Right. right. Several thousand dollars right. in ransom that he wanted. So. Allegedly. Right. Allegedly, other members of the Brinks gang arranged for O'Keefe to be paid a small part of the ransom he demanded, and Costa was released on the 20th of May, oh, 1954. So now he's taking hostages and demanding his shit be paid, dude. I mean, Uh-oh. I'm kind of I'm on O'Keefe's back right now. I was going to say, yeah. This what did is, they do? They should have paid his legal fees and all that shit. His legal fees and give him his cut. Right. They got almost $3 million. Come on. But did they, though? Were they able to, to trade in those money orders and all that? Well, at least they still got $1.2 million in cash. Right. So there's only 10 people. He should have, yeah, and he should have, what, 100000 bucks coming at his least, way. At least. At least 100000 bucks coming his way. Come on, guys. Mm, come on. Come on, guys. Mm. 
So now we got O'Keefe. He's mad O'Keefe. He, he's a mad yeah, O'Keefe. He's a mad O'Keefe because he's out on uh, parole and awaiting uh, appeal to go probably back to prison for 15 to 20 years. Right. And now he's like, I want my money. Now he's taking people hostages. See, it was different when he was in prison because he's in prison. You Can't know? do nothing about right. it. Right. Now when he's out, he's like, no, don't worry. When I get out, they're my boys. They're going to do, do, do me right. I don't think so. I think he got out and immediately came to him and was like, what the hell, man? Yeah. And it was tensions ever since he's been out of prison. True. So, true. Yeah. Interesting stuff, man. Wait till Gutierrez gets out. All right. Well, we'll see because uh, that's the end of this story because we're, we're only getting Who's started. Who's coming out on top of this story? Is it going to be Pino? I don't know. That's Wow. I think Pino so far has been the lucky one. Pretty is much, going to yeah. continue that way, or is O'Keefe going to come out on top? Is he going to be the guy that gets immunity or something? Or are they all going <laughs> to? I just got a strong feeling that O'Keefe over here is going to be offered some sort of deal to uh, tell on everybody about right. it. So, uh, yeah, that's only part one, guys, and we got probably more than what we just did for our uh, part two. There's no way we can do a two-and-a-half-hour episode of this. We're already at a, no. almost an hour here. So. Right. With that, uh, kind of a cliffhanger here, because now we got um, ransoms and kidnappings and shit's about to go down, and nobody's even officially charged. Nobody At this point, nobody's even officially charged with the Brinks robbery at this point. This is five years later. Five years. Oh, my. So uh, They tried everything they could do to deport people to... They did everything. everything. Put them in prison for other things, and and they ain't getting nowhere. But we shall see what happens in part two. With that being said... The this episode should have been on Patreon in video form and unedited, not, but uh, you know things things happen and uh, we had to cut short our first recording of it and had to pick up the next day. But uh, it is still only um, the middle of December and our Patreon.com forward slash Bang Dang officially launches January first, twenty twenty two. Where from there on out, every episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers will be on video, will be unedited. So. You're going to be hearing a lot more, uh, like for this episode, we've already recorded for like an hour and 40 minutes, and you probably will get an hour of what will actually stay in the uh, right. the uh, edited podcast episode. So that's an extra 40, 30, 40 minutes there that you guys are going to get on Patreon, as well as our other shows, Monday Night Watch Along and Lee and Corey on the Case, all in video, all unedited. And like Check I out said, the trio of uh, Christmas episodes, though. The trio of Christmas, Christmas episodes. <laughs> the trio um, of Lee and Corey on the Case wherever you get your podcast, Monday Night Watch Along, wherever you get your podcast. And with that being said, we'll be back next week for part two of The Great Brinks Robbery. This is like, I've been excited for every part two. I know. Billy the Kid. All of them. Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp. Part 17 through 20. Right. (laughs) Um... uh, Big Horn. Big Horn. We did did a few part twos up in there. I think... um, who else had part twos? A lot of them did. A lot of Wild West ones, especially. A lot of Wild West um, ones. With that being said, we're the Mouth of Michiganers with Bang Dang.